0: Please rise for the reading of God's Word. This is Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it, not those with, was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You may be seated. So again, uh, my name is Willis Weatherford. I'm the RUF, campus minister at Washington and Lee. If you don't know, RUF is Reform University Fellowship. It's the campus ministry of this denomination. So, this church actually helps send me to the campus, both with pastoral care and oversight. I'm a member of the Presbytery as a teaching elder in our denomination, but also financially, this church and people in this church help send me to campus. So, thank you. And it's a delight to be here with you. I know Essen a little bit from Presbytery, I think a lot of him, and just happy to be here with y'all. So, This is cool. And um, another thing you should know about me, I got a wife, Mary, three kids, twins who are five, almost five, and a two-year-old. So for those of you who have kids, or who have had kids, you know a lot about my life, just from those little... One other thing you need to know about me, uh, I'm from Kentucky, Central Kentucky. uh, So I'm a Kentucky Wildcats fan. So my March Madness bracket, I have three. In one of them, Kentucky is winning. I know it's a long shot, it probably won't happen, but i got to follow my heart, you know? I just need the Wildcats to win. The one thing I really want you to know about me, though, is that I'm not a good person. I'm not a good person, but Jesus loves me, and he loves you, and that changes everything. And one of the ways Jesus changes us is by warning us. This morning, we come to receive a warning that we may not want, but that we need from God's inspired word, and the warning is against hardness of heart. That term, hardness of heart, brings to mind an experience I had a few weeks ago. Uh, my wife and I just bought a house, a little bit, of, you know, half acre of land. that has a garden on it in Lexington, Virginia, where we live now, and uh, started kind of digging out the garden plot that's there. And I'm digging, you know, digging out the clay and everything, and just kind of rearranging, and clink. What's that? Clink. Clink, and I, it keeps on. It's like, it's a big, it's not a thunk. It's not like a treasure chest. That would be exciting. wasn't that. So I kind of dig away the dirt, and it's this giant boulder the size of, like, a barrel, an oil barrel. It's really, really big. Probably weighed five or 600 pounds. I don't know. And I'm like, what am I going to do with this giant boulder in my garden? Because it's, it's right beneath the level of the soil. Like, I can't plant anything on top of it. It won't grow. The roots won't be deep enough. What am I going to do with this boulder? Uh, you know, I, Different things occurred to me. If you want to hear how I dealt with the boulder, if you have a boulder in your garden, I can help you. I figured it out. We can talk about it later. But for now, I want to think about what are the boulders of hardness in the garden of your heart? Where is your heart hard? So where we're going this morning, where our hearts are hardened, how our hearts are hardened, and how our hearts are healed where our hearts are hardened, how our hearts are hardened, and how our hearts are healed. Let's get into it. First point, where our hearts are hardened in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So this passage in Hebrews, it's quoting and paraphrasing Psalm 95, which is itself, it's using this story from Exodus 17 as like a negative example saying, don't do this. Instead, praise God. Psalm 95 is beautiful. We use it as like a call to worship all the time. Go read Psalm 95. But what I want to do now is go read This passage from Exodus 17 for you, because we have to understand the story that's being used to understand what Hebrews is saying. So it's short, I'll read it, you don't have to turn there. From Exodus 17, we'll see where our hearts are hardened. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. So Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The hardness of heart that Hebrews 3 commands us against, commends us against, sprang up among the Israelites in the wilderness. This is where their hearts were hardened. So where was that? Rephidim and the wilderness of Sin are on the Sinai Peninsula, which if you imagine, I'm going to try to do it like backwards for you so it makes sense. So Egypt's down here and up here is Israel God's people have just been set free from slavery in Egypt, right? So they're on this journey to go to Israel and they got across the Sinai Peninsula, which is a peninsula which is like being given a big hug by these two northern arms of the Red Sea. And the one that they had to cross first when they were running from Pharaoh, was the uh, westernmost arm, which is actually right below the modern-day Suez Canal. And so where they are is they're partway across this peninsula heading towards Mount Sinai, but not there yet in this place called the wilderness of Sin. And Refidim. Okay. Uh, So, this is where they are in the wilderness. None of us have been there. Maybe a few of you have been there. I haven't been there. Most of us haven't been there. But we have been in a similar existential situation, discomfort. We've been uncomfortable. Some of you are uncomfortable right now. We know what this means. The potential for our hearts to be hardened lies not in a particular physical location, we know this, but in the experience of discomfort. The wilderness is a place of discomfort. If you look at the Peninsula of Sinai on satellite imagery, Google Earth, like I did this week, you will notice two colors that are entirely absent from the Sinai Peninsula, green and blue. No water, no vegetation. It's a desert. It's a desert place. It's an uncomfortable place. The wilderness was a place where they were uncomfortable drastically. They ran out of their, stu- their stores of food and water. They were uh, probably feeling like they were about to starve to death. They are wondering, how am I going to feed my kids? How am I going to keep my kids, myself, alive? They were hungry and thirsty, wondered if they would survive, and in the midst of their discomfort, it turned out their baby faith in God to be present, to be powerful, to provide for them, actually was not much faith at all. They did not trust God in this situation. And I think we can understand that. (laughs) If we had been them in that situation, we probably would have been right there with them. Where are you uncomfortable? I realize the discomforts that we may feel. We look at like our lives, and some of you have got major things going on, but we may be looking at the experience of the Israelites in that wilderness, that desert place, and thinking like, okay, cool your jets, preacher any of my discomforts are not really worth comparing to what they were going through. There is a difference there. And yet, think about this. The devil is perfectly happy to use even the smallest discomforts of our lives to turn us against our maker. He does that all the time. So if he's content to do that, we have to pay attention even to these lesser discomforts in our lives. So where are they? Are you uncomfortably aware of unmet physical needs in your life? Maybe sickness. Discomfort, chronic pain, illness, injury. Um, are you in a financially uncomfortable spot right now? Are you perpetually underslept? If you're a parent with young kids, I get you. <laughs> I know what that's like. We're not supposed to survive on six or seven hours of sleep a night or less. Do you have unmet relational needs? Are your social situations uncomfortable for you? Maybe you long for a more intimate relationship with a friend with your spouse maybe you've had a lot of friends that have just died and you're feeling lonely do you dread going to school to work maybe you feel constantly disrespected by coworkers, friends grandkids other family members all of us suffer some level of discomfort and especially in those places we are prone to hardness of heart some of you are already asking, which is good? Okay, so what is like, hardness of heart actually mean? What is this hardness of heart we're talking about? We're going to dig more into that in the next point, but for now I want you to see one thing, one aspect of this hard-heartedness that springs up in the wilderness. It kind of makes us a little desperate. So there's this time, I was in the Boy Scouts. Uh, we were training for a, a big canoe trek excursion in the Boundary Waters up in Minnesota. And so we're in these lakes of Kentucky, part of this training is the portage. If you've ever been like canoeing, you know the portage is where, or portage, if you want to say it the American way, it doesn't matter. Uh, you get to the end of the lake, and then there's another lake, but there's some land in between, half mile at most usually, not that much. So you just pick up your canoe, put it on your back, walk across to the lake, go back, get your backpack, sometimes two or three trips. So this particular day, tired, hungry, hadn't had dinner yet. It's like rainy and muddy. It's gross, very uncomfortable. And I'm walking along with this big heavy pack on my back, and I see in the mud, half covered with mud, a Ritz cracker that somebody has like actually dipped peanut butter with, but they dropped it, I guess, and there it is just lying in the mud. And I did not think twice. I reached down and I ate it and I enjoyed it. It was amazing. I don't normally do this. I don't normally pick up food out of the mud and eat it, right, that's not normal behavior. But in this moment, that looked amazing, and I ate it, because when we're uncomfortable, we are prone to get a little desperate, feel like our needs are not gonna be met, and go elsewhere, beyond our normal behavior, and this is a dangerous tendency. At the same time, it deserves to be said that as Americans, we actually build our lives around like security, making our lives more secure, more comfortable. Even if you consider yourself to be a person who like, appreciates risk and things like that, actually, if you look at your life, like we value comfort and security, right? So you, uh, we have supermarkets that we enjoy. You probably in your house have fridge, freezer, maybe probably microwave, oven, toaster oven. Uh, some of us have 401ks, Roth IRAs, brokerage accounts, other accounts I don't even know about, health savings accounts. Many of us have home insurance or rental insurance, life insurance, car insurance, health insurance, disability insurance, especially compared with the rest of the world, even if you don't have all those different kinds of insurance, all those kinds of accounts, compared to the rest of the world, we're pretty comfortable, right? Like this is just a thing about being an American. Yet, interestingly, God always leads his people into uncomfortable places. He leads us there. Lest we think that the solution to this problem of hard-heartedness is just being comfortable and not getting uncomfortable. Remember, God led his people from Egypt to Israel through the desert on purpose. God leads us into and through uncomfortable situations. He does it on purpose. Did Jesus ever promise us a comfortable life? I haven't found that verse in the Bible. It might be there. It's not there. Uh, Actually, Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. If our Savior did not have comfort, can we expect to have comfort in this life? Is it a granted? Is it a guarantee? It's not. Our best hope is not to avoid discomfort, but to understand how our hearts are hardened, like how this happens. And if we can figure that out, we can also see how our hearts are healed, how they're healed in that place. So that if, that if we could get that figured out, we could follow Jesus even into the wilderness without our hearts becoming hard. So let's keep going in our passage to see how are our hearts hardened. That's the where in the wilderness and the discomfort. How does it happen? So verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day As long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we see three aspects of hard heartedness in these just two verses, three aspects. The unbelief is the nature of hard heartedness, the deceitfulness of sin is the cause of hard heartedness, and isolation is the greenhouse of hard heartedness. So, quickly, let's discover how our hearts are in danger of being hard hearted. First, Unbelief is the nature of hard-heartedness. So here in this passage it's read, and verse 19 at the very end, it identifies unbelief as the core of hard-heartedness. The nature of hard-heartedness is unbelief. So when this passage says heart throughout, it's just the Greek word kardias. Probably sounds familiar, cardiac, you know. It's just the same, you know, it's the word they use for the physical heart. But just like us, the Greeks, the biblical author use this word to talk about more than just the physical heart. It's about the will. It's about the mind. It's what you believe with. You know, it says, um, it talks about you know, having an unbelieving heart. So the heart is what you believe with. A heart that believes God's promises, that has faith in his work, trusts his power, longs for his healing, hopes for his provision, waits for his coming, that's a soft heart. That's a living heart. We want living hearts. A living heart is awake to the beauty of what God is doing in this world. The coming of his kingdom, the potency of his presence, the delight of his direction, the wisdom of his word, the hope of his healing, the fellowship of the faith. You want a living heart. A heart that God has woken up to believe him, to see the beauty of what he's doing in the world, to take him at his word. But the alternative... It's a hard heart, a dead heart, It's cold, hard, as dead as that boulder in my garden. And hearts can be hard in an ultimate sense or a partial sense. Okay, so in our passage, the, the ultimate sense, the ultimate result of persistent unbelief is apostasy. Verse 12, "'Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God.'" So we're not talking about losing your salvation here. The, the whole witness of Scripture from first to last is that if God has you, He's not going to let you go. When you've been united with Christ, that's an eternal union. So we're not talking about losing your salvation. We're talking about apostasy. So someone who hears the gospel, experiences the fellowship of the believers, you know, gets tastes of what God is doing in the world, perhaps joins the church, perhaps makes a profession of faith, perhaps is baptized, and yet in the end, Disbelieves God, disbelieves his promises. Just like the unbelieving Israelites were not allowed to enter into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, a good place they wanted to go, they weren't allowed be- to go because of their unbelieving hearts. This passage in Hebrews is saying the hard hearted, ultimately, the one who disbelieves God, will not enter the new earth when Jesus comes again. This is a warning for all of us here. Belonging to the visible church, being a good churchgoer, reading your Bible, even putting sin to death, getting more righteous outwardly, these do not qualify you to enter the eternal rest that God promises to those who have faith in Christ. Hear the warning of the God who loves you. Your eternal destiny, it stands or falls on nothing else than the finished work of Christ on the cross and your faith in Him alone for your salvation. We also see, though, not just that ultimate hard-heartedness, that apostasy, we see a partial hard-heartedness, a partial unbelief. See it in here, it says, Exhort one another every day as long as it's called a day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives in a gradual progressive way. It slowly takes root. John Owens, English Puritan from back in the day, he wrote on this better than anybody else. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin is killing us. Sin is hardening us by nature. Sin is deceiving us. It's progressive. It's active. And true believers who are united with Christ for eternity Are prone to this hardening. We're vulnerable to this. Which parts of your heart, which parts of your life, your mind are being deceived? Where is sin killing you? If you see a sin, any sin in your life, we make make room for sin. We give it permission. We make peace with it. Like, I can kind of handle that. I can manage that. That would be too uncomfortable for me to really like talk to anybody else about or bring to Jesus. it seems like it's okay because it's not causing any visible harm. I guess that sin is okay. We do this, be warned. Any sin in your life, it is hardening you. It is hardening you to your detriment. You are in danger. But worse, worse even than the sins that we kind of know about and make room for are the sins that have us so deceived already. We don't even see them. We don't even think about them. They don't even come to mind. And prime suspect number one is our own righteousness. Our own righteousness. As church people, we, do, we, we love to delight in our own righteousness, right? Our own good deeds, our progress in the faith. And that's good. Like, it's, it's good for us to see where I was and where the Lord has brought me by his grace, by his sanctifying power. Praise God. We should celebrate that. We should delight in that. But when our delight is in our own effort, our own ability, our own hard work, You know, when we talk to people about how far we've come, we talk about the repentance that we did and the confession that we did and how we got help in the right way, and it's all about us and our pride. When we do that, we're in deep, dark, deceitful sin. The devil loves nothing more than to convince Christians that we're pretty much good on our own. We kind of made it. Thank goodness that Jesus helped me in the initial stages of my faith, but now I'm kind of, I'm arrived. I'm walking. I'm on the way to heaven. We're good. Don't need him anymore. If you feel like you're not in danger of hard-heartedness, you're in imminent danger of the deceitfulness of sin. You're already deceived. And all of us, all of us here have these nooks and crannies and crevasses in the glaciers of our own hearts that are hard as stone because of the de- deceitfulness of sin. We've all got these creeping vines, parasitic growths, invasive species of sin that are spreading throughout our lives, beneath the surface. And if you kind of have seen the story in your own life, like I have, you know that isolation is the greenhouse of this spreading sin. It's the greenhouse. The focus of this passage is community. Uh, God speaks of a generation. He refers to these people as they. The inspired author speaks to the brothers and sisters and says, take care lest any of you have an evil, unbelieving heart. He says, exhort one another. These people are being called to something together and you are being called to something together. In this place, they are being warned as a whole and this morning, you, tabernacle, are being warned as a whole. God is warning us, we all need each other to help us see where we're deceived, where we're hard-hearted, where we're in sin. A church full of isolated believers that each individually have all these individual relationships with Jesus is incredibly vulnerable to the deceitfulness of sin. We must be connected to each other intentionally, purposefully in friendships where we are known and where we know, where we give each other permission to point out things about us that we can't see and we don't even want to see. We have to have that. If we don't have that, we are vulnerable and we are a place where many will fall away. From the living God. So hear the warning of the God who loves you. Do not harden your hearts. The good news, if you're like me, you see this, you're like, this is a lot of bad news. I have hardened my heart. My heart is hard in ways that I didn't even know about, can't even control. And yeah, I'm pretty uncomfortable, so I guess I'm in danger of even becoming more hard-hearted. Where's the gospel? Let's look at the gospel. He doesn't Our God does not leave us alone. He moves towards us. Let's look for the hope we need. How our hearts are healed. Verse 17. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have come to share in Christ. That word translated there, metokoi, in Greek, it has this sense of participation, partnership, Communion. Earlier in Hebrews, it's actually translated companion. So we have come to partner with Christ, be a companion of Christ, participate in him is what it's talking about. And this verse reminds us that the main event of the gospel, the main event of being saved, of having a living heart is Jesus. It's not us, it's Jesus. Being a participant with him, in him. And as it says this, it answers this question. It brings us up to answer questions that some of you may have been asking. How do you know if you've come to partner with Christ? If you're here, your conscience is soft, it feels pricked, you've been like, okay, shoot, am I in danger of hardness of heart? Am I going to fall away from the living God? How do you know if you've come to share in Christ? And this passage answers that. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Confidence in what? Okay, let's go there first. What's the confidence in? Confidence in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Confidence in the priestly work of Christ as the only mediator between us and God. Confidence in the fully human, fully God nature of the only Redeemer of God's elect. Confidence that Jesus is a friend of sinners who will not break a bruised reed and will not snuff out a smoldering wick. Confidence that he loves the widow's might, draws near to the hurting, weeps with the broken, sits down to eat with prostitutes and sinners like us. Confidence that he will lose none of the sheep that God has given him. Don't miss the point that the author of Hebrews is making. He's not saying, hold your confidence firm so that you will come to share in Christ. That's not what he said. He says, you'll know that you've already come to share in Christ if you hold your original confidence firm to the end. The point is not that your your assurance, uh, your endurance depends on the quality of your faith. The point is that your endurance depends on the object of your faith. And Christ, if he's the object of your faith, if you share in him, he will hold you so that your confidence remains firm to the end. Faltering though it is, weak though it is, he will keep that. We, um, you maybe remember, uh, sailors used to have these tattoos on their knuckles, one letter on each knuckle, hold fast. And this was a reminder of key uh, competency of their profession. Like you got to hold fast to the rigging or else potentially be blown overboard in a storm. Pretty important if you're a sailor. And we can read this and we can think, okay, I've I got to hold really hard to my confidence so that I'm not blown overboard, because if I do, then I'm lost. This is not what this is saying. It's actually a lot more like the story. It took place on Everest in May 2007. Uh, Nadav Ben Yehuda, he's an Israeli climber. Uh, he's feeling strong despite very poor weather conditions. This big old storm came in. It's blowing really hard. It's snowing. Uh, visibility gets to less than 100 feet, which is like from me to the sanctuary. He can't see the surroundings. All he can really see is the snow up front, in front of him going uphill. Uh, the weather gets worse and worse and worse. Um, he's motivated to keep climbing despite these poor weather conditions because he could be the youngest climber, youngest Israeli climber, to ever climb Everest. Kind of a cool goal. So he's motivated. He keeps on going. He starts passing climber after climber who's coming down, giving up, it's not worth it. I'm heading down. He keeps on going. He passes two dead climbers in the snow. Doesn't stop going, keeps on going. He's motivated. And then, just 900 feet below the summit so Everest, 29,000 feet, he's made it most of the way. 900 feet below the summit, he comes upon a climber named Aiden Irmac. Aiden is unconscious in the snow, gloves off, crampons off, missing his oxygen tank, completely exposed to the cold. But he was alive. Immediately, Nadav canceled his summit attempt. He physically tied Aiden, this unconscious climber, to his harness and he starts dragging him down the mountain. And they both had severe frostbite, but they made it. They survived. Why? Because this unconscious climber held really tight to Nadav? No. Because Nadav stopped what he was doing grabbed onto him, tied himself, his fate, to this man's fate, and dragged him down the mountain and saved him. If you are in Christ, Jesus has tied himself to you. Stronger than any climbing rope to do, Jesus has tied himself to you. He's grabbed onto you. He threw in his lot with you to the end, and he holds you fast, enabling you to wake up and to begin holding on to him until the end. Jesus loves the hard-hearted. He loves people like us. He loves people who aren't impressive. This is our God. This is our Savior. Isn't he worth holding on to? Isn't he worth placing your confidence in? If you're here this morning and uh, maybe you're struggling with belief, like you, you kind of want to believe, like that sounds like a good story, but you just you haven't turned that corner yet, you're not sure how to, I would love to tell you my story right after the service. I know Essen you know, next week, future week, there's a lot of people in here who would love to tell you the story of like how God did something new in our lives. No one here is going to judge you because you haven't turned that corner yet. Faith is a gift that God gives us. We'd love to explore that with you. If you're here and you're struggling with sin and you can see, you hear what I'm saying, and you're like, yeah, I can see how my heart is hard. I know that there's sin in my life that I've given permission to. I want you to hear the warning, it's having an effect. You're not okay. Do not give it permission in your life. Don't make a truce with your enemy. Get an ally. Find someone that you can trust, someone who loves Jesus, that you can do the very scary thing of saying, Hey, I'm going through this. I'm struggling with this sin, and I don't know what to do about it, but I know that I need help. I know that that's scary, but what Christ offers to us in one another is so much better. The, the possibility that you could actually be known as who you are and loved at the same time, so much better than what the devil can offer us. Most of all, as this passage says, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Exhortation is not reserved for preachers. (laughs) The people of God are given the gift, the calling of exhortation. So encourage one another. Exhort one another. Build one another up. Celebrate the work of God that you see around you. Speak words of life and of hope to one another. Send a text. You know, make a phone call. Write a note, write a letter. Join a Bible study where you could become known to other people and begin to know other people so that you can see what God is doing, so you can see where they're in danger, so that you can know them enough to exhort them. God uses these things. He uses this. God is at work. He uses these things to heal our hardened hearts, to drip an ivy of grace into our thirsty veins. So trust Jesus to heal your hard-heartedness. He's the one that heals it, guys. The, the takeaway is not, okay, I got to hold, I got to do it right, I got to figure out some way to be a good enough Christian to not sin enough to where I won't become hard-hearted. No, you're already hard-hearted. We all are, and Jesus heals us. Trust Jesus. Look to him. Exhort one another, cling to the God who holds fast to you, especially in the wilderness. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace to us. That you do not leave us alone in the wilderness. You do lead us there. It's hard. We don't like it. But you meet us there to give us the water we need to live. You heal the hard places of our hearts. And so we ask, Emmanuel, that you would heal us, that you would come to be with us in new ways. Find the boulders in our, the gardens of our hearts. Root them out. Break them up. Make them soft and alive. We ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.